0: Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing, I'm Peter Switzer, thanks for joining us. On tonight's show we have St. Wong from Prime Value, the fund manager. He's going to be looking at, at the implications of Evergrande and what it might mean for the stock market. Is it a Lehman Brothers situation waiting to happen? He'll also look at the stocks he likes right now. He evaluates a company like BHP, which has really copped it since the Evergrande story. Has broken. And then Marcus Bogdan, the uh, fund manager of the Switzerland Growth Fund from Blackmore Capital, is going to look at the stocks he likes right now, the income stocks that he thinks are going to do really, really well. And he looks at companies like Amcor, Brambles, News Corp, and Ramsey Healthcare. Then Jerry Goldschmidt, who's the founder of the Rent Better website. Now, this is for landlords who really want to do it DIY. This is a very interesting interview, particularly if you are a landlord or you're thinking about getting an investment property. And then Ying Yi and Cheng of Culebar Capital talks to us about the latest on interest rates and where the bond market is heading. That's the show for this week. Let's kick it off with ST1 from Prime Day. Well, joining me now at a pretty eventful time for the stock market is ST Wong from Prime Value. Good to see you, ST. Afternoon, Pete. All right, let's, let's cut to the, the chase of the big story, the Evergrande story, or is it is it Evergrande? Um, how, would, how would the Chinese pronounce it? Um, Evergrande, I, I guess. Um, yeah, I,
1: I know no better than you do um, on this matter, Peter.
0: <laughs> I always thought you'd have an insight uh, in, uh, on, on China compared to me, mate, but you are a very Aussie S.T. Wong. Maybe
1: a little bit, uh, you know, on that aspect compared to you, Peter, only because I spent a bit more time in Asia than you have. <laughs> um, but I'll share some insights as to what I learned from uh, for example, Asian financial crisis and overlay that on Evergrande, which I think is, is um, quite pertinent, uh, mm-hmm. what could happen in the next you know, six to nine months where Evergrande is concerned. So if I jump right into it, I mean, there are obviously three possible options for Evergrande, which obviously, as we know, is a large property, property developer in, the US, uh, in China, with about 300 billion worth of debt on its books, which is a huge amount. So three possible outcomes that the market's considering is one, uh, liquidation, which is sell of all all of Evergrande's assets. Uh, Number two, which is what the the market's hoping for is a bailout from the Chinese government of Evergrande. And the third, um, which is, I think will be the most likely outcome is a restructuring of the assets that the company has into, I guess, bits where Um, Some are impaired, some are doing well, so they'll probably extract the good assets from the bad assets and make it work that way. Mm. Um, So the market has clearly been focusing on the possibility of every grant failing uh, in the last couple of weeks, intensify, um, and then the last couple of days, potential bailout potentially from the Chinese government, but nothing official has been said, Uh, but I think If I were to break it down to three possible outcomes that investors should be thinking about where Evergrande is concerned is really as follows. First, near term, I think a restructuring is probably a possible outcome. And this comes from my own experience from the Asian financial crisis where a number of property companies, just like Evergrande was just over leveraged, overbuilt. And then the government is sitting on this situation of, well, what do we do with all these companies and assets, so restructuring seems to be the most likely scenario. In a sense, that it gives every stakeholder a potential way out uh, without losing too much face. And being 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 Asian, uh, not losing face is significant consideration mm-hmm. in the scheme of uh, corporate matters. So that's clearly number one. Um, number two is obviously um, concerns on property in China. Evergrande accounts for about four percent of the uh, property market in China, so not not huge in the scheme of things, but um, in aggregate uh, it could cascade down to small developers as well. So market's thinking about maybe a ten percent impact on the property market in China. So that that has to be considered as well. And least my final point is that it's really not not about uh, what's going to happen this year, 2021, but possibly what's going to happen in 2022. And here we're talking about the slowdown in the Chinese economy. Um, The potential for property sales to be impacted uh, because of Evergrande um, has the potential to cascade into slow property sales, slow manufacturing activity, and potentially slower economic growth in China in 2022. And that's why you see some volatility in the commodities uh, sector, which which I'm sure we'll talk about in, in the course of our discussion.
0: Yeah, for sure. So, so the, the link basically is that because Evergrande is such a big builder, it also would, would use a lot of steel, a lot of steel, therefore demand for iron ore, and that's kind of the, the link between Evergrande. And also the fact that you make the point that the whole property sector could go into a a, a period of lower growth, and therefore there's less demand, and that, that's pretty well understandable. But I guess two questions now, and they're related. One is Do you see Evergrande being anything like the Lehman Brothers failure, which precipitated mm. the global financial crisis? And secondly, um, do you think that um, there could be a significant stock market sell off, or is this ultimately going to create a buying opportunity, a pullback, and a buying opportunity?
1: Sure, Peter. Let me address the uh, first question first, which is obviously um, important to distinguish two matters. Um, First, Evergrande is an economic crisis, so to speak, because it is a large player within the property market, and it does have tentacles across a number of sectors in in China. So it is an economic problem. Uh, But the distinction we make is that it is not a systemic problem in a sense that the financial institutions in China are not aggressively exposed to the Evergrande situation for two major reasons. One is that um, the government or the central bank in China has been preparing um, banks in China for the Evergrande situation pretty much in the last four to six months. So there's been some preparation in terms of stress testing, for example, of balance sheets. Um, and pretty much in in terms of pulling back the risk exposure of the banking sector in in China. So in that sense, we think um, the Chinese financial system can absorb a risk like Evergrande um, and not yield to a systemic situation, which we're all very concerned about. So distinction between an economic situation, which is poor and bad, needs to be managed, but also um, it is not a systemic situation or crisis in our view, such that it would trigger you know, kind of a Lehman situation where we saw back you know, decades ago. So that's how we distinguish the two between an economic scenario and a systemic scenario.
0: Okay. So therefore, if the market sells off, and let's say it's a pullback of 6 or 7% or something like that, um, would you see it as a buying opportunity uh, on the basis that you think 2022 and 2023 would be good for stocks?
1: I think our premise hasn't changed significantly, which is um, 3.1 uh, rates will remain low despite what the Fed has um, come through last night in terms of tapering. That's fundamental to our thesis on the market. Uh, the second point is economic recovery continues apace, and that should lead to corporate growth in 2022, 2023. Um, so that doesn't det- detract um, the fundamentals, where Evergrande is concerned, um, where it is an economic situation um, within China. The third point we make, um, Pete, is, in all this is that companies today are much better positioned because of how the balance sheets are um, in, in in this environment. So we're not going to see a situation where, you know, again going back to Lehman example, uh, where there's going to be a crisis of liquidity uh, that is less likely to happen to our companies today than it would have been, you know, say 20 years back.
0: Okay. So let's just concentrate on one company that has suffered in the short term, namely BHP, um, with the oil price coming off the boil. Do you you see BHP getting in in a buy zone on the basis that if 22, 23 is gonna be a stronger year for the global economy, well, then BHP share price probably has been taken down too far. There's certainly
1: a case to be made for a company such as BHP where um, it's just been all sold on the back of iron ore. Uh, What I would add as a precursor to my thoughts on BHP is that we should be expecting commodities to be somewhat volatile in the next couple of months because a lot of headline news haven't gone away. Every grant will still continue to dictate news flows, for example. Uh, But we we think about the medium to long term, say 18, 24 months time, uh, where we anticipate still global growth coming through. Therefore, demand for broad commodities will be reasonably solid. Now, we, we have to say that we are reasonably selective on commodities exposure. Iron ore is probably not our best pick at this juncture. At some point, prices will trough, uh, but in, in the near term, I think it will be volatile. What I would suggest, uh, Pete, if one were to be looking at the commodities companies is to um, go down two paths. One, select a commodity which you really like or are really positive on, such as you know, copper or, or even lithium, or go for a company which has got truly diversified earnings across a number of commodities. Now a company such as South32 comes to mind because of how diversified its commodities exposures are to aluminum, uh, manganese, nickel, and coal as well. So from our perspective, um, a company such as South32 uh, actually makes um, just as good sense as investing as would be, as would be investing in the company such as PHP.
0: Mm, okay. Um- it's interesting, I've got Macquarie. Macquarie thinks that BSP has a $56 price target up there. So that person at Macquarie is very, very positive on the company. Now, let's go into what you, you like because, you know, your fund searches around for value stocks. I've talked to you before after crashes of the stock market, it's a perfect time to go hunting for value stocks. What, what are the, the one or two stocks that you really like at the moment or you might have recently added to your fund?
1: Yeah, let me start off with uh, Bigger Cheese. Uh, Bigger Cheese is a small mid-cap company, which I guess we've more recently gravitated to. Um, stock price actually has been derated because of where the milk price has been. And milk price is going up because uh, a pool of, um, I guess, dairy cows have actually been shrinking uh, across a variety of factors, one of which high beef prices is actually shrinking our pool of uh, dairy cows, uh, perversely, it, and this despite the fact that the drop has lifted and therefore milk production is actually reasonably positive. Um, so the fact is, uh, milk price in the near term is high, and because bigger uses milk as an input to his production, uh, that creates margin um, to some extent. But here's the kicker. Having derated its share price, bigger today, is a much better company quality wise in terms of earnings quality compared to where it was three years ago. And this is because it acquired Lion Dairy and Drinks, the, the Lion Dairy and Drinks business, which is a large producer of branded you know, products from Big M to uh, cheeses and yogurts, mm-hmm. which um, Big only started to bring that business on board. So we think that. When it becomes a fully integrated business for Bigger, this is going to be a highly profitable business for the company. And therefore, you're paying today 18 times, having derated for a company which is going to be better quality than what it was three years ago. Okay. So that's one which we really like at the moment. Okay, Ms. Bigger. Give us
0: one more and I'll let you go. Um, I've
1: okay. talked about News Corp um, in the past. Uh, okay. still like News Corp. Uh, coming in yesterday, uh, the share price had been sold off post its result in, uh, in June uh, in August, sorry, a couple of weeks back, so which was a surprise to me, to be frank because it reported really strong numbers. So we saw share price gradually drift downward. Uh, no real reason to that. We thought it was a good result. Uh, last night it did report uh, it was going to increase the share buyback to a billion US, a billion US dollars. And we're seeing a good reaction to that. But fundamentally, we think it's a good business where Momentum um, is businesses across publishing, um, Australian in the U.S. as well, Wall Street Journal, uh, books, uh, REA in Australia and Realtor in the U.S. These companies are doing well. The Momentum has continued post the results, and that's been confirmed by uh, Bob Thompson, the, uh, the CEO of the business, last night in a conference, and we think it's one which will continue to, to do well into next uh, in, into 2022. So that's one we continue to like um, at this point, Pete.
0: Great, ST. Thanks for joining us on the program, mate. We'll talk to you in a few uh, weeks' time. Great. Thanks, Pete. Become an annual Switzer Report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my 7 investing principles where I reveal the exact strategies I use to invest. You'll get access to an exclusive PDF, video recording and even a free copy of my book, Join the Rich Club. With a 30-day money-back guarantee, a Switzer Report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future. Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. And that was St Wong of Prime Value. And before we go to our next guest, Marcus Bogdan of Blackmore Capital, I want to remind you about next Tuesday we have our smaller microcap conference on and this is actually an opportunity for you to listen to the CEOs or managing directors of these companies. And they'll basically tell you about what their company does and what's the outlook for these companies. So if you, all you have to do is click on the link in the description below and uh, register and make sure you turn up Tuesday online for our Switzerland MicroCap conference. Well, joining me now is Marcus Bogdan, who is the uh, fund manager for the Swiss Dividend Growth Fund, and he's from Blackmore Capital. Great to see you, mate.
2: Good morning, Peter. Good to be here.
0: Now, I know you want to talk about um, some of the stocks you hold, like Brambles and the mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. Corp. And also I'm interested, do you want to talk about Ramsey because a number of my experts have liked Ramsey in recent times. Yeah. So we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah. I'm getting questions around Swiss itself. And mm-hmm. Because it's not really a stock so much. It's a fund. It's a quote, mm-hmm. like an ETF-type fund. So mm-hmm. it's a unit price. And people are curious about how is the price determined on a daily basis is it demand for the stock or is it the actual value of the stocks that you hold inside the fund
2: it's the value of the stocks that we hold in the fund so it actually represents the true fundamental value of the of the portfolio and so the evidence is you know over the last over the last year or so you've had very strong earnings growth and that's been reflected in strong underlying share prices of the companies that we that we own so categorically you're uh, you're buying it at nta
0: yeah nta is a net tangible asset which is like if you were forced to sell up everything you held that would actually give you the, the unit value of all those um stocks inside your fund
2: the collective value absolutely
0: okay so that that sells that one and also i think the point should be made that when the the coronavirus crash of the stock market happened. The, the the unit price of Swiss, like everything else, fell. But it was just a reflection of the fact that the stocks that you were holding, their share prices were falling. So by by definition, yeah. unit yeah. price down.
2: absolutely and and just to remind investors what happened there from february to march the market fell about 36% the underlying portfolio did better than that and that's what we really want to happen because we're buying high quality companies and so they're generally more resilient they'll be affected but uh, history has shown that we're better off in the, in those down markets but then what we've seen in the last year has been this significant recovery, not only in the in the share prices, but in also the underlying earnings. And so it's all been based on sound fundamentals.
3: Yeah.
0: And I guess how, how is the, the market on a daily basis, I'm, not, I, I'm kind of thinking the market can't do this, on a daily basis they can't really work out what the future dividend is going to be and, and the yield of the fund. That's going to be something that you can probably guess What's going to happen, but there's no accuracy on a daily basis, is there, what the yield might end up being?
2: No, no. And we look at the, the sort of the six month or the 12 month estimate around, around dividends. And that's why, again, it's important to have these companies where they're consistent earners. And so there's not that great variability uh, on, on the dividends. And so uh, you've been able to forecast with, with a, a high level of, uh, of certainty in terms of what the dividends look like.
0: Okay, there's been a fair bit of instability around the moment. Um, so why don't we just talk about how you're seeing this threat from Evergrande in China, or in Evergrande, as some people want to uh, I think people who go to Starbucks are calling it Evergrande. I think people who come from Australia call yeah. it around. Yeah. Mine is what do you think uh, is the impact of Evergrande and its implications on yeah. oil prices? What is it doing to the stock market and how are you playing it? Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, one one of the the areas of why we are sort of more cautious in the short the short term is that there has been growing evidence of a slowing in the Chinese eco- economy more, more broadly. Uh, and then also the government l- looking to curtail some of the over leverage, particularly in the property development side. And so a slowing construction market a slowing infrastructure market, has an impact on commodity prices. And that's why one of the reasons why you have seen um, the iron ore price falling from over $200 a tonne to under $100 a tonne. It's now crept up above 100 again. But that, that has been the impact. And so that has a real impact on how you value these resources companies. And that's why you've seen such a sharp pullback uh, in companies like BHP, Rio and Fortescue, which are are at at the coalface uh, of those lower commodity prices.
0: I know it's only your best guess, but uh, what's your feeling around uh, Evergrande being uh, another Lehman Brothers?
2: Well, no, I think it's. I think it's important that I think it will be contained within within China. I think the government is stepping uh, into that market in terms of supporting the debt level there, and so I don't think it has the the contagion, particularly the global contagion. I think it it can be corralled within China as they are addressing an over-leveraged property market there. But the uh, the sort of the secondary effects of that is that it is affecting overall growth in China and the overall outlook for commodity prices. So as Australian investors sitting here, that's the lens that I would be looking at, uh, would be the view that we have on commodity prices going forward.
0: Okay. Let's talk about some of the companies that you want to um, talk about, namely Amcor, Bramble's, News Corp, and also Ramsey. So let's start
2: with Amcor. Yeah, sure. So I think one of the areas where you're getting greater consistent, greater confidence around guidance have been in these Australian companies which have significant offshore earnings. And offshore, not into, into Asia, but into the US, the UK and Europe, where those economies are staging very good recoveries. Uh, they're ahead of us where in terms of vaccines. Uh, and Amcor provided guidance for FY22, 2022 financial year, which we're in at the moment, um, of earnings per share growth of between 7 and 11%. Now, that that's a really attractive growth rate. Uh, the share price has come off recently about, around 8%, uh, and the dividend yield is around 4%. So um, robust earnings growth, attractive dividend, uh, d- dividend uh, yield of around 4%, 4% uh, and is facing into um, really uh, strong consumer staple trends that we're seeing both in the US and, uh, and in Europe at the moment.
0: Okay, now, Brambles has been a, a company that can disappoint. What's your, your current view on Brambles going forward?
2: Well, they recently had an investor, investor day where they are... Um, increasing their capital expenditure for this uh, financial year. Now that came as a bit of a surprise to the market and it's led to around a four percent reduction in uh, consensus profit profit numbers. but again, they are still going to grow in, in 2022. they're expecting revenue growth of between five and seven percent but profit growth of only one to two percent but we do and the company has guided that from next year onwards they expect that uh, they'll see a strong uplift in earnings and earnings growth in the high single digits Uh, and so over the next three years we're expecting profit growth of around seven percent per annum and again brambles is another company which is facing in to these very very Strong consumer trends, particularly in the in the staple market, so I see this pullback of around 11 percent more of an opportunity uh, to buy a, a company which has really got a, a strong under underpinning in terms of its earnings and its and its revenue growth.
0: Now, Marcus, there was there was a time where people would say, "Well, with News Corp, it's just so hard to work out what's going on. How can you invest in it?" But a yes. lot more people are actually supporting News Corp nowadays. Is the company more transparent, more understandable nowadays?
2: I think I think it is. I mean, I've been a long-term follower of of, New, of News Corp, uh, and there has been a a very um, strong. Uh, Recovery in their base businesses. Uh, Dow Jones, which owns the Wall Street Journal, and, and owns uh, businesses in 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 sort of compl- in compliance, uh, digital real estate. People might not realise that uh, that um, News Corp owns 60% of REA, and then 80% of a digital real estate company called Rielta. Um, in in the U.S., those businesses have been really, really, str- really strong. Uh, and then the publishing businesses, which is HarperCollins, which is which grew earnings by around 40%. Um, in the um, in the last financial year. So the sum of the parts discount there is still significant uh, and they've just announced a billion-dollar buyback. But it is important to note um, that they are not uh, a significant dividend payer and, it, and it's more for the, the, the growth funds rather than the income funds. Yeah. Okay.
0: Now, finally, Ramsey, and, and so if you look at what the analysts are saying, they pretty well think Ramsey's price to perfection right now but my, my view on Ramsey is that over the next year or so it probably is going to do better is that is that your view as well Marcus
2: yeah I do I, I do and I think the evidence points to that because so Ramsey is the largest private hospital operator in Australia but also it's significantly glo- uh, a global player in the UK and in, and in Europe. And we're seeing that those markets are recovering for them. Uh, We had a call with a uh, UK GP earlier this week that works in the Ramsey hospitals and um, and we've followed him right through the COVID period. And now they are in their UK operations now seeing a really strong ramp up of the recovery there, uh, people coming back to elective surgery. There's a significant backlog, uh, and this is a a global issue that that, uh, all of these markets will have to tackle. Uh, And then um, a significant uplift in NHS funding to tackle this, uh, this healthcare backlog of Uh, greater elective surgery. So Australia is about three to six months behind that. uh, And as it is inevitable, as we come and we start to reopen, uh, that these long waiting lists that we're seeing in Australia, particularly in the public health uh, hospital system, will need the help of the private system. And Ramsey, being the largest player there, uh, should, should see good growth uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah,
0: So reopening trade is not just for hospitality and travel, it's also for the the medical fraternity as well? No, we
2: we absolutely like it. And that's why we're overweight uh, healthcare stocks in the portfolio. It's very, very strong long-term thematics of ageing populations and chronic disease, but they also are a great player for this reopening trade as well.
0: Great stuff. Thanks for joining us, Marcus. Thanks, Peter. Well, there are about 2 million landlords and 3 million rental properties in Australia. And recent statistics claim as much as 33% of the market is now self managing. Now, Rent Better is a platform offering landlords a way to run their investment property DIY. Jeremy Goldschmidt is the founder and CEO of Rent Better. He joins us on the program. Thanks for coming on the show, Jeremy. Thanks very much for having me on, Peter. So, why don't you tell us about uh, where all this came from we know australians love property uh, and lots of australians have got into being landlords um but where did the idea of rent better come from sure i mean if i look at my sort of
4: personal background um i actually bought an investment property uh, about 15 years ago uh, and it was actually at the moment that i sort of took over that property and looked at the sort of management agreement and thought hang on I can actually do this, I can save money. I was a busy professional at the time, but having sort of been through the process and doing, if you like, a little bit of research on what was involved, I was pretty confident that I'd be able to handle it myself. And it just so happened that over the time since then, I'd had family and friends and, and sort of, I guess, associates further out who'd asked, well, you do it yourself, how, how do you do it? And I found myself writing cheat sheets and guides and explanations And over time, all of those things seemed to travel quite far and wide until it became very apparent that there was a pretty high demand for this sort of thing, that people actually did want to take control of their investment property and manage it themselves without a third party in the way.
0: So I guess in many ways, what you're saying is that, like most things, you would have learned on the job that you you didn't actually make mistakes in the early days, but I guess you would have created a system that actually overcame those problems And in the end, it became a really good working system. Absolutely right. I
4: mean, there's a series, especially when it comes to managing a property, there's a series of processes that one needs to go through. Uh, in building out the rent better platform, we've been able to actually automate a lot of those steps. So if you're a landlord and you need to find a tenant, or if you've already got a tenant and you need to manage your property, there are a series of activities and steps and processes that are now built into the platform. So from a landlord's perspective, you can actually take advantage of a sort of well-worn and well-trodden path that's been put into the system and and leverages the experiences of thousands of landlords across the country.
0: Okay, so why don't you explain precisely how the Rent Better platform works? Because people watching this will be thinking, all right, is it, do I have to actually occasionally turn up and all that sort of stuff? So give us an idea of the, the, the day-to-day operations and the occasional
4: Absolutely, yeah. And I think that's a great question because you started by suggesting this is on the DIY end of the spectrum. And it absolutely is, but there's a tool and a system that helps you. So we, as I said, we talk about it in in sort of two, if you like, functions. One is to find a tenant, which would mean that if obviously your current tenant is leaving or perhaps you've just bought the property and you're looking for a tenant, uh, the first thing you do is you're able to go to the RentBetter platform and set up your property and basically create an ad. So uploading photos, writing a description, setting up inspection times. You can then publish those ads onto the major property sites where you'll see obviously thousands of listings. So real Estate domain, rent.com.au. Um, And then you can handle the inquiries and the applications through the rent better platform. So it's all automated through the system. If you needed to then assess or basically go through a process of selecting a tenant, you can run tenant checks through Equifax or through the the credit bureau. Uh, And then finally, once you've decided that you're going to proceed with a specific tenant, you can actually create the lease agreement for that tenancy, send it To the tenant through the platform, they can sign electronically, you can sign electronically, and pretty quickly through a few clicks of a button on a website or through the platform, you're actually securing your tenant. And so that's been something that we get sort of rave reviews about over time is just how quickly and easily people are able to do that. And then if you like, is really where the the work starts, so to speak, because if, if you're like, I'm sure most of your audience out there and you've got an investment property, the return on that investment comes from the rent that you receive. So the really critical next step is once you've secured a tenant is going into that um, management mode. And that's where the platform really delivers a lot of value. So uh, we operate a system that allows you to number one, set up um, a payment schedule that's attached to the lease agreement. So let's just say you're Uh, Rent is five hundred dollars a week, paid fortnightly over twelve months. That schedule is set up. It automatically will uh, uh, run the payments, track those payments, receipt them. If there's any failed payments, it will actually send out notifications. So it really keeps you on track and keeps everything in one place. And so you've got, I guess, confidence and comfort in that um, payment process. And then when it comes to all the associated things like tracking expenses, billing the tenant for utilities, and I guess what you'd call the administration side of things so that at tax time you've got a report with all your income and your expense tracked. The platform actually gives you all of those features and tools that are associated with it. So again, from a landlord's perspective, as you put it before, there is a DIY element where you're in control and you're monitoring and managing, but the system is driving a lot of the activity to make it more efficient for you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How long is the... um... The Rent Better uh, platform being operating for? So we've been going for almost five years now. The last sort of two and a half,
4: we've had I call it real investment and we've grown quite substantially as a result. Uh, but the business itself has been going for, for close to five years now.
0: Yeah. And so what were the, the big lessons in the early days, which have now become critically important to make sure that customers that come to your website have a good experience? Because A lot of people would love to think, oh, it's online, I don't have to do anything. And in the perfect world, you wanted to create something like that, but experience taught you that there are some things that people are going to have to do to make sure that the whole experience works out. Absolutely.
4: And look, I think, um, you know, many of your viewers, again, will have had experiences with Airbnb and Uber and a range of these tech platforms. And the thing that always, um, I guess, drives value for people is the experience of using it and shortcutting processes that were otherwise quite painful. And the one that always comes to mind with me is, of course, I can just hail a taxi on the street, but you often think about, well, at the end, I'm going to have to pull out my credit card. It's going to be a painful exchange. I don't want to do that. If I just go through Uber, it'll be pretty simple and slick, and I'll feel better about getting in and getting out. And I I think it's much the same with, with a lot of the functionality that we offer because often um, people will find a tenant, let's just say, but there is all this paperwork and there's all this friction in the process of creating, if you like, the necessary uh, steps from I've identified someone to how do I securely and in a compliant way set up my tenancy. So whether it's the lease agreements and having a digital signature on the platform and being able to go from an idea to action, um, we, we think those sort of Moments in time actually smooth the process and do make it not. It's not quite easy that you do it with your eyes closed, mm-hmm. but it is a process whereby you're in control and you can take the obvious steps that need to happen. So, I think one thing from our perspective is the, if you like, creating the bridge between major steps in any process. If that bridge is really well connected and easier for you to step on and across. And that certainly helps, and we found that around lease agreements, condition reports, and some of these features.
0: And have you found that? I'm not sure whether it's necessarily um, something that you guys recommend, but I would have thought, like in a perfect agent relationship, they do everything. They actually seem to represent you. They also seem to assess up assess, uh, assess the, the tenant really well, uh, but. The flip side, we know most agents or a lot of agents don't do that. And so you get really disappointed with the money you're paying and the experience you get. Do, do you recommend, even if the, the, the whole process becomes very seamless fire rent better, that, that the landlord at least gets to um, meet the tenant and have, have some experience so you can actually size up the tenant?
4: Absolutely.
0: That, I mean, that's something that I think will will never go away. And you talked about before
4: some of the sort of time commitments and the things that one needs to do in this process. And we, you know, we actually produce uh, webinars and a range of content around the best way to do this. But certainly when it comes to, um, I guess, from the tenant's perspective, I don't know about you, but I would be very unlikely to sign a lease agreement without physically seeing the space where I'm going to live. And from the landlord's perspective, again, video calls, and phone calls are really helpful. But I do think there's something to be said for actually physically seeing and and having sort of, if you like, a judgment call on that person. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to making a decision, uh, one of the heavy criticisms that you will hear from people who use a third party is that the, uh, if you like, the incentives aren't always aligned because the third party often gets paid when the rent gets paid. So they're in a hurry to just get anyone in there And perhaps the judgment call on whether they were the right person is is sometimes lacking. And if you're a landlord, you might say to yourself, well, how do I know I've got the right judgment? But, you know, most people will back themselves to say that there's an application which gives you, if you like, on paper, the ability to assess someone. There's a tenant check through the credit bureau, which gives you, or through Equifax, which gives you access to the national tenancy database and gives you, if you like, a third party insight. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole range of, um, I guess you'd call judgments that come from reference checks through through referees provided and through meeting that person. And it's triangulating between those three points, which it's not intended to be a 10 hour exercise of, you're not assessing this person for a loan, but at the same time, there is a little bit of credit risk that's established when you have a tenant. And in actual fact, you should do a little bit of due diligence, but it can be done fairly quickly. And I would I would guess that, that all of your viewers would feel pretty confident that they've got a really good sense of people there in a position where they can make a, a pretty um, sensible judgment call.
0: Yeah, obviously when it comes to sort of digital alternatives to the real world, there's always a cost variation that gives you a competitive advantage. So if you look at the typical cost that someone would pay using an agent versus your system, What would be the variation in cost? Yes, so we
4: typically, and we've actually got a calculator on the the website, but we typically go with a number of around $2,000 a year per property, which, um, you know, takes into account, obviously, what percentage or the average percentage, and depending on where in the country you are, that's going to vary. But uh, what are your percentage of management fees? What are the extra fees for finding a tenant? And what are the actual, um, if you like, administration costs on top of that? Uh, and obviously, if you looked over the lifetime of a property and if you've got multiple properties, it adds up pretty quickly. So, um, you know, the, the two things that we typically see our customers coming to us for are, number one, they want to save money. And number two, they want to take control. And, and the two are quite tightly linked. If you take control, you're likely to save money and vice versa. If you save money and manage it yourself, you're likely to have more control.
0: Okay. So, obviously, you've got a pretty good handle on the customers who really like the service what is the typical customer who's going to be trouble for you and they will find the the whole experience difficult for them
4: well that's a great question because you know when you when you think about if you like any sort of new fintech or any great new app that you've heard in the market and you know technology businesses that that are going sort of gangbusters you typically think of an audience that's driven around millennials and fast adoption of technology and if you then were to look at the stats and you know you can look at ato stats or there's a range of other sources on this but who owns investment or rental properties in this country and you're going to find that 60 to 70 percent of that cohort are actually people that are 45 plus and in fact if you do some sub segmentation you'll find that there's an even higher percentage in the 60 plus category so from our business perspective when we started we actually thought it would be the young professionals who are buying into the market who want a new tech solution And what we've actually found over time is it's actually the sort of either pre-retirement or early retirement segment. and, And it is very skewed towards the 50 plus age bracket who own the property and actually who are the ones who have, you know, been around and seen what a property manager who might be sort of 19, 20 years old and not necessarily taken the full care of their property or who have a bit more time on their hands and want to look towards their retirement income and protect a little bit. So, In in actual fact, and we work really hard on this and we'll we'll often sort of use it as the guiding principle for design is, you know, how would mum or dad look at this and be able to use the system and easily follow the cues and clues along the way? Mm -hmm. So so from our perspective, we we actually work really hard and do not see the technology, so to speak, as a barrier. Um, So so when it comes to troublesome customers, I'm tempted to answer that we actually don't see too many of them because the goal has been to find someone who, is determined to, if you like, take the first step and take some action and ownership over this. And therefore, the platform sort of takes you through it from there. And, you know, we pride ourselves on delivering an excellent level of service and and you'd see reviews of that in the public domain. So we're always here to help if someone, you know, if technology perhaps is a a concern for people.
0: Well, Jeremy, a great idea. Good luck with it. And uh, let's um, hope you become an Airbnb of the future. eh? Thank you very much. I hope so. (laughs) Cheers become an annual switzer report subscriber and get unprecedented access to my seven investing principles where i reveal the exact strategies i use to invest you'll get access to an exclusive pdf video recording and even a free copy of my book join the rich club with a 30-day money-back guarantee a switzer report subscription is one of the wisest investments you can make towards your future Find out more at switzerreport.com.au slash YouTube offer or click on the link in the description below. And joining us now is Ying Yi and Chen from Koolabar Capital. Thanks for joining us, Ying Yi.
3: Thanks, Peter.
0: Look, uh, you know, we always sort of use you as our way to understand what's going on with interest rates. And there's a lot of consternation around inflation in the USA and whether that could lead to the Americans raising interest rates early. What's the the house view on US inflation and its possible impacts on interest rates?
3: Yeah, look, we've spoken about this before. And uh, to be honest, uh, the the Fed has said that they will go ahead with, you know, tapering at some point this year. Um, And, you know, very much the view that we have is, yes, like they should go ahead with that, notwithstanding, you know, the concerns around Delta. So RBA, Know, whether it's RBA, as I said, or the Fed in the US has to navigate around, you know, what is happening in the near term with the concerns around Delta, but also, you know, navigate monetary policy, which is much more forward looking as a result. So they have to, you know, not only do they have to now cast, but they also have to look into the future to a certain extent when they dictate monetary policy. So the, the first sort of step for them would be to taper bond purchases. Uh, as a first step to target any sort of um, inflation sort of concerns. Now, inflation is is still manageable. Um, So up until they get to the point where, um, you know, inflation does sort of creep towards the higher of the two to three percent band. they are unlikely to hike interest rates so first they need to reduce their bond purchases and then at a future point in time they will start hiking sort of rates at which point then yes you know um any sort of portfolio that has interest rate risk uh so long-end bonds or you know what we call interest rate duration risk or fixed rate risk is obviously something um, that will be, you know, exposed to that more on the downside.
0: If the Yanks, say, moved late 2022 because it's growing stronger than people expected and inflation was higher than they expected, do you think they would put pressure on our central bank to raise interest rates or would Dr Lowe stick with his 2024 promise?
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. There's obviously a lot of uh, crosswinds um, in that sort of thinking because on the one hand, and I think we've definitely sort of spoken about it before, currently Australia's borders are closed, right, um, which means that without the, the non-residents in Australia, um, that's put inflationary pressure On wage inflation here. uh, And it's also meant that unemployment's gone down as well because the supply of labor um, is less. Now, come next year when we are probably expected to reopen our borders then you would expect that non-resident or that supply of labour to come back into the country Mm. which has the effect of you know deflationary effect on wages uh which is probably the most important thing The, the most important thing feeding into what the RBA is looking at in terms of um you know, inflation is very much that wage inflation number. And when these non-residents do return because of open borders, that will have a deflationary aspect. So on the one hand, yes, you know, you could say that because the Federal Reserve is starting to hike rates um, that will, you know, potentially give, you know, some sort of a, a green light for other central banks to not deviate too much from that sort of policy. But the RBA needs to watch what's happening domestically, which um, is likely to be, you know, deflationary, if anything. So for us, inflation is less of um, a concern, say, in. The next couple of years, it might be something. Yes, say come twenty twenty four, which is more realistic. So, you know, to answer your question, we think the RBA would more likely sort of stick with the, the current sort of program and look at what's happening domestically.
0: Okay. Now, um, your boss Chris Joy, writing in the AFR, was talking about how um, because states are spending a lot of money, um, state government bonds are really popular, uh, and they're issuing more now. You, you manage, you know, you guys manage the Swiss, the higher yield fund, which is basically a, a bond fund and primarily government type bonds or really uh, blue chip type banking type bonds. Um, what's that going to do for the fund? Is it, is it a good thing or a bad thing for the fund that um, state government bonds are in more supply?
3: Well, actually, state, more state government bond supply has actually meant um, more bonds and that actually has reduced prices. However, going forward, um, the expectation is that um, this supply will be met with very substantial demand. Um, so let's just talk about the supply picture first and then I'll you know address the demand sort of dynamics. As you guys know um, and as your audience would know, the price... Prices are determined by demand and supply. So the more demand, the higher the prices. The more supply, the lower the prices. So on the on the supply side of the equation, um, basically, uh, state government bond prices have cheapened up. And so we see substantial, you know, very significant sort of value. We think that they're the cheapest asset class around, you know, compared to equities, compared to, um, you know, corporate bonds, for example. We think they're the the cheapest asset around simply because uh, the state governments have recently, um, despite the fact that, you know, they've all announced uh, smaller than expected budget deficits, Recently, New South Wales was the outlier. So New South Wales announced a smaller than expected budget deficit, which means that you you would expect that they would need to issue less bonds or less debt as a result. What instead happened was that they announced uh, a much uh, larger issuance program for the coming financial year. So this was known as a New South Wales funding shock, and that funding shock caused state government bond prices to cheapen up quite aggressively.
0: The yield goes
3: um, up. Yeah, well, well, the yield goes up and, yeah, the bond prices moves lower yeah. as a result. And then another sort of um, added sort of pressure has been obviously the lockdown. So the Delta-induced uh, lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria had the market speculating that, um, you know, New South Wales and Victoria would need to issue more debt. Um, and therefore bond prices move lower again. Um, and that's essentially because lockdowns cost money right and the, the states hadn't budgeted for that say in May and June when they announced as well. However what we're finding is that potentially that there's going to be much less debt issuance than the market expects. So less debt issuance mean bond prices um, move higher as a result. Why do we expect less debt issuance? Well firstly, We think that New South Wales will go back to, you know, uh, clearing some of the debt that they announced um, at the same time. And that comes from the sale of WestConnex. So they already have $15 billion from the first half of the WestConnex sale. They're likely to receive the second half of the funds uh, this month as well. And our expectation is that they will use that money to reduce debt. Uh, Secondly, at the same time, if you look at what New South Wales is actually spending on the lockdowns, it's actually um, around 50% of what they actually budgeted. So this lockdown is actually, um, you know, not costing them as much as they had budgeted. Secondly, we're expecting New South Wales to come out of lockdown in October. Uh, So the New South Wales government is quite married to that 70% uh, to 80% vaccination rate, as opposed to the daily case numbers. Um, This will be positive for the economy, but also for the bottom line, for the New South Wales government as well. So that's on the supply side. So we're expecting less debt issuance. The demand side is incredibly interesting. So as I mentioned, you know, the more demand for state government bonds drives the prices higher. The demand side of the equation is very much driven by what, um, you know, our thinking around this uh, facility called the Committed Liquidity Facility. Now, I don't want to get too technical um, because you do pull me up about being technical too, very often. But essentially, if you think about it, Uh, globally, regulators require banks hold emergency liquidity, okay? Um, And what is the best form of emergency liquidity? Government bonds. Now, post-GFC, our government bond market at the time, if you rewind, wasn't very big. We didn't have a very large uh, government bond market. So if the banks needed to hold these government bonds as emergency liquidity, the RBA and APRA were concerned that the banks would crowd out the government bond market. It meant that other people couldn't buy government bonds and you don't want that. So instead, uh, the RBA, so uh, the Deputy Governor De Bell introduced the committed liquidity facility which is known as the CLF. And within this committed liquidity facility, the banks were able to hold alternative liquid assets as a surrogate. What sort of alternative liquid assets? Well, it included their internal home loans, it included uh, RMBS, it included each other's bank senior bonds. And frankly, if you were a bank um, and you were focused on maximizing return on equity, holding those sort of securities, Um, Well, holding those sort of assets uh, generate much higher uh, ROEs than you would on, say, investing in government bonds. Now, the thing is, APRA has been telling the banks uh, for quite some time that the CLF needs to disappear because we don't have the same situation that we did, you know, say, circa, um, you know, 5, 10 years ago. Instead, the government bond market has grown quite significantly because governments have had to raise debt to address Issues around COVID, so the size of the government bond market is actually one half trillion dollars now. So the banks don't really have that same excuse to hold alternative liquid assets as emergency liquidity. Um, and so, you know, the the expectation from um, many in the market was that this CLF would disappear over, say, two or three years. Um, our thinking has been that, you know. The, there's cause for APRA to reduce this um, in a shorter time frame and uh, APRA announced this on Friday and they said that the CLF needs to disappear by the end of 2022. The size of this CLF is $140 billion or so, which means that that $140 billion needs to find its way into high quality liquid assets. What is a high-quality liquid asset? It can include deposits with the RBA that earn 0%, or it can go into Commonwealth government bonds or state government bonds. Now, if you work from an economic point of view and you don't know, believe that the banks are focused on maximising return on equity, then they should target the highest yielding of those options, which would include those state government bonds. State
2: okay,
0: government bonds, yeah. Okay, we just
3: yeah, yes. we're constructive on, you know, multiple fronts there. Right.
0: So the bottom line is, is this a good thing for the Switzerland High Yield Fund? Because yes, it yeah, is. Yeah, okay, that's the bottom is. line. That's all I care yes.
3: about.
0: All yes. right, thanks for coming on the program.
3: Thank you so much, Peter.
0: And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget our micro-cap conference on Tuesday. Just click on the link in the description below and I hope I see you there next week.